Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to our second Ask Me Anything podcast as part of our Long Story Short sermon series. My name is Becca Bruner. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Knox, and I am with my favorite co-pastor, David Bruner. Hello. You paused on that as if maybe I had a second favorite co-pastor. Well, you've done this twice now, and both times you've been like, I'm here with my favorite co-pastor. It's always me. I'm the only choice. Yeah, that's true. I I think you'd know that by now. (laughs) My favorite co-pastor is indeed my husband, the Reverend Dr. David Bruner. Hello there. And today we are coming back at you with our Ask Me Anything questions, particularly around the New Testament. Uh, We got to come and answer your questions about the Old Testament, of which there were many great questions. If you missed that episode, you can go back in our podcast and listen to it. Uh, But this uh, podcast episode today is going to focus more on your questions about the New Testament, which we have read in almost its entirety in these last couple of weeks. That's amazing. We're almost through the whole series. Like we got one more week to go in Revelation next week and then we're donezo. That is correct. So uh, to get us started, Dr. David Bruner, uh, could you explain for us, just kind of give us a high level like overview of if we jump in, we're starting to read the New Testament, like what's the point? When the New Testament got put together as a you know, collection of books, some of them stories, some of them letters, some of them other things. Um, if we're taking it as a whole, what's going on with the New Testament? What are we, what are, what's the basic thing we're supposed to learn from it? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a really big question and you can spend hours and hours unpacking. I mean, one really simple way to talk about it is um, to say that the New Testament is a collection of books that um, tell us about Jesus. And as Christians, we think that the whole Bible is about Jesus in some way. So I think of Martin Luther famously said, you know, the Bible is the cradle that holds Jesus Christ. And so part of our job as Christians is to open up scripture and and look for Jesus. And sometimes he's present in a very obvious way. Sometimes he's present in a hidden way. Mm-hmm. So the, the New Testament, of course, is is a place where Jesus is present in a more um, obvious way. So you have the Gospels that tell us the story of his life and ministry, and you have letters, um, predominantly by Paul, but not exclusively about him, that tell us about him as well and the meaning of his life and death and resurrection. And you've also got... The book of Acts, which is a story about the movement of the spirit and the life of the early church. So um, while the books of the New Testament are very diverse, they're very different from one another. They're all um, written for the same point, which is to build up the faith of Christians in Jesus and strengthen them in their walk with him. Um, That's really what it's about. So it's like... The Gospels tell the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Acts tells the story of the living Jesus and how he continues to live through people coming to know him and follow him and the formation of the church and the spread of the church, of Jesus' church. And then the letters are 
somewhat stories, if you if you kind of read behind them, they're instructions, right, of how we live out this following Jesus life and in particular circumstances. But if you get behind the letters, there's always a story there, right? Mm-hmm. There's a story of a people who are trying to follow Jesus in their own imperfect ways. Right. Um, and then Revelation is kind of this crazy uh, story of what it's going to look like or, or, you know, what it's like in heaven where Jesus is still alive and what the hope that we have continuing to follow him even through difficult times here on earth. Would that be kind of a... Yeah, I think that's that's a great summary. I mean, people, one of the things I love about the the letters or the epistles in the New Testament is that they're all written to particular churches. Right. And so... Um, they have this timeless quality, a universal quality, because they're holy scripture, but they're also very particular. You know, at the end of the end of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he spends almost a whole chapter naming individual people there in Rome and saying, oh, say hi to this person and say hi to that person and tell them I say hello. Um, and I love reading them for that reason, that there's this um, very unique personal message um, that is edifying for everyone to read there. Um, and I think there's that that could even be said of the book of Revelation. I mean, it's a very challenging book, no question about it. But um, it it has some of the same. It, people forget that there are messages to seven churches in the book of Revelation, hmm. um, and for each one, he has a, a a word of warning or an encouragement or something like that. So, um, yeah, Revelation is too is very much a response to things that real Christians were going through, um, and by virtue of sharing that message, um, I think it has a, a word uh, uh, of encouragement and exhortation for Christians everywhere. Okay, so let's get a little more specific then to the pieces of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. We've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right, that's the highest number I can count to. <laughs> so I made you laugh, good. Where did these particular Gospels come from? Yeah, so I feel like part of my job as a pastor and as a theologian is um, when people ask simple questions, I give complicated answers to them. (laughs) So, you know, a question like we have these four gospels, where did they come from? You can spend a whole semester unpacking that. There's a lot to learn. I'll try and give a brief high level overview. So the first thing to say is that um, the earliest, you know, Jesus had disciples and followers, people who knew him and people who shared stories of things he said and things he did. Um, And in the immediate days after his death and resurrection, the Christian message and the story about Jesus was carried on by those people, people who knew him and loved him and and, um, were convinced that he was the Messiah. After a couple decades went by, those stories started to get written down. And... This is one of the places where you see the difference in cultural context between Jesus' day and our own, right? That in our day and age today, we would, you know, take a picture, write a Facebook post about Jesus, and that would be how we announced to the world that Jesus was written. And that wasn't how it worked back then. Most people were illiterate, and writing something down was uh, really quite unusual. So it was only after a couple decades that the early church started to take the stories and memories that it had— that it had about Jesus and put them into writing. And so you start to get this genre of literature that's really very unique called the gospel. 
which doesn't exist anywhere in the world prior to the Christian movement. They and the gospel been, means the good news, right? That's exactly right. So they're just, they're not trying, they're not saying, hey, let's sit down and write the Bible. Mm-hmm. They're saying, let's tell a story that's some really good news. That's exactly right. So the gospel of Mark, which is um, usually regarded as the earliest of the four gospels, just starts out and it says the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? Um, So that's very much what they're doing, is relaying the good news, the life-shaking, world-changing message of Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, So Mark comes along first. um, His gospel is the shortest, um, and... And I don't, this isn't, I know this isn't totally historically verified, but I feel like I read somewhere that it's thought that Mark is getting his story from Peter. Is there some truth to that, that perhaps the disciple Peter was the person kind of telling his story to Mark and Mark's the one writing it down? It's possible, yeah. Um, There's definitely some evidence in the Gospel of Mark that Mark knew people who knew Jesus. So we don't exactly know who wrote the gospel of Mark. People call it the gospel of Mark as much as for convenience as anything. Um, But for instance, at the end of Mark's gospel, he shares a note about two particular people who help Jesus carry his cross Mm -hmm. on the crucifixion. And he mentions them specifically. And, And the reason scholars think he mentions those people is because they were individuals known to the community to which he was writing. So he's saying, hey, if you if you want to check on this, go talk to that guy. Exactly. He, he literally was there. You know him. You you know see him in the grocery store every week. Go ask him. Exactly. Yeah. So Mark is definitely incorporating eyewitness experience or eyewitness testimony into his book. At the same time, he's not doing anything like writing a history or a biography by modern standards. Well, one of the things I love about the Gospels, maybe this is a little weird, is like how completely the uninterested they are in our modern um, our modern questions. So like a modern biography of Jesus, we'd be like, okay, who were uh, Mary and Joseph's parents and where did they come from and where did they graduate from high school and how, how did Mary and Joseph get together and what, like all of that stuff is just completely overlooked by Mark. Well, that's been something we've learned through the Old Testament too. The, the point of the Bible, while it does teach us history to a Mm -hmm. certain extent. That's not the message it's trying to communicate. That's exactly right. The point of it as a genre is not to say this happened and then this happened and then this happened at the end. Right. The point is to tell us about who God is and how God works in the world, Mm -hmm. which then creates, there's a different way of writing it. So that, that kind of brings to the question, you know, a a leading question a little bit, you know, why four gospels? Because if the point was just historical storytelling, then it's, we only need one, right? We would just need one, collaborate, put all the stories together into one cohesive story that tells the, the quote unquote, historical story of Jesus. But that's not the point, is it? Right. Yeah. So what, what, how do the four function instead of just having one story about Jesus? Yeah, sure. So I, I think of it, um, the image I often go back to is like a quartet singing in harmony, right? So uh, a four-part quartet singing some beautiful piece of choral music. So there's something that goes on. The melody by itself might be beautiful, 
but there's something that goes on where you have four slightly different notes being sounded and moving around that's more beautiful and richer and powerful than one would be by itself. So what we find in the Gospels is not just we find one story that's identical in many particulars across all four Gospels, but we also find a story that varies significantly in its particulars across all four Gospels. And the decision of the early church, which I think is very wise, is to say, nope, we're going to let those four traditions stand. We're going to let John be different from Matthew and Luke be different from Mark. There's actually a Christian, like in the, I forget exactly when he lives, in the 300s or 400s, whose name is Tatian, T-A-T-I-A-N. And he attempts to create a harmony of the Gospels, the, hmm. the so-called diatessaron. So he literally goes through all four of the Gospels and kind of cuts and pastes and, and merges them into one super gospel. Hmm. Um, I, because I'm a big nerd, I always think of Voltron. Do you remember Voltron <laughs> from the 80s? I, can, I can't see if Matt remembers Voltron. Matt, Matt is nodding his head. So Voltron was like, they were like robots, but when the thing really got, chips were down, they really formed like one, one super robot that was as tall as a skyscraper. I thought this was the coolest thing when I was eight. So for you to reach my generation, you're going to need to, or not my generation, but like my people, right. you're going to need to come up with a, an analogy that's like how Saved by the Bell is right. represented here. I Voltron. Have, I have no Saved by the Bell analogies for you, Becca. As you know, my disinterest in Saved by the Bell is almost totally I'm going to just have to ask you to work on that. Okay. Uh, No, but I love you. So um, Voltron creates this like super gospel, this one monster gospel. And he says, look, guys, look what I did. I squished them all into one gospel. This can be our one gospel from now on. And the church as a whole just says, no, we're not interested in that. Keep it with four. And I I think there's um, an immense amount of wisdom in that, right? It's, it's, um, it prefers a kind of creativity and depth and um, fertility that's found only among four gospels, which differ somewhat in their details, to one monolithic account that's identical in all of its particulars. And I think that tells us something about the work of the Spirit, <laughs> right? Um, so that's how we get four. And in fact, what you see, right, is there's this wonderful historical process where Mark is first, Matthew and Luke follow, and they rely somewhat on Mark, but they tweak his story in particular, in particular ways. And we think they do this because they, when they add something, they, they often add similar things or similar stories, and we think they might be drawing on a shared source that they have. Um, And then the Gospel of John is um, often the most different from the other three and has his own well of stories and sayings that he draws on. Um, And so they really are very rich and very complementary and different, right? And that image of a four-part harmony, I think, is a really fitting one. I love, and I think it's how, I think it's John, how the gospel of John ends with something like that statement, like Jesus did all these other things too. And if we were to write them all down, the book would never end. Right. Is that John? Yeah. Yeah. And that he, he shows his hand a little bit to say, you know, these were written so that you might believe, and I'm going to not get the quote exactly right, but these things that John wrote, he said, I wrote them down so that you would believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of God, God, and believing in him have life in his name. So he's like, right. I chose specific stories and, and examples and things to show you and tell you about for a specific purpose. It was not yes. the purpose of giving a 100% percent 
dot to dot to dot account of what happened in Jesus' life and everything he said. It was these specific things so that you would believe, so that you would have life. Exactly right. And right, the, the, the New Testament is not historical literature. It's salvation literature. Right. And the, the point of the New Testament is to give us enough historical information to be able to confess him as Savior and Lord, which is the really important point. Like it's not going to make a wit's worth of difference in our lives if we know that Jesus, you know, if he said— you know, if he cleansed the temple before he said this particular thing or if he said it after, that doesn't matter. What matters is he was who he says he was. Right. He is who he says he was um, and that we can confess him. There's a wonderful poem that I've read. Um, I've read it at Easter gatherings at our house every once in a while. It's very strange. It's by Ezra Pound. It's called The Ballad of the Goodly Fair, F-E-R-E, which is an old English word for person. Um, and it's about Jesus Christ. And um, it's the reflections of Simon after Jesus has risen from the dead. And at one point he says, they'll not get him down in a book, I think. Hmm. And it's this wonderful poetic statement of saying something about the risen Christ is captured in scripture, but something about Jesus evades every effort to capture him on the pages of the Bible. He is not a captive to the book. He is revealed there, but he's alive and we can meet him today. And certainly people did meet Jesus and have their lives transformed by him after his resurrection, but before the Bible was what it was. The the, the Bible tells us to and introduces us to the presence of Jesus, um, brings us into uh, a relationship with with him. It can, but as we go into the book of Acts, you see, I mean, they didn't have the Bible. They had the stories that people were telling them. And they had an experience of the Holy Spirit that drew them into the presence of Jesus and made them followers of Jesus. Um, So that kind of leads to a next question, because it's interesting. You read the Gospels, and they're all about, clearly, all about Jesus, about his life, his ministry, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection. Then you get into Acts, where there's, Jesus is clearly the focus, Mm -hmm. but in a different way. Right. And... uh, as you talked about in class last week, Paul becomes a major figure uh, pretty quickly. Um, You know, starting at Acts 9 and then going forward, Paul seems to be the one holding center stage, both in his missionary journeys and and what he does to share Jesus with people, you know, much further beyond what they expected geographically. Um, But then Acts ends with, you know, having seen these missionary journeys, and then we get into these letters that Paul wrote, and there's a lot of them. Yeah. The New Testament has a whole lot of things that Paul had to say, or if it's not 100% sure it's Paul, it's somebody like taking on Paul's name because That's right, yeah. they knew he was important, so they were right. like, ah, yes, this is also Paul, Right. Um, which is a whole thing, which we don't have to get into in detail, <laughs> but reality is pretty early on it became clear that Jesus is really important and Paul is really important. Tell us a little bit more without going into, again, we can listen to last week's class on Paul's conversion and that story, but why is Paul such a big deal? Why does what he has to say occupy so much space in the New Testament? Why did, why did his, why did his letters become such an integral part of our scripture? Yeah, I mean, so that's a great question. Um, the The first thing to say is that Paul is Paul calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. Apostle just means sent. So he's he's the one God sends to the Gentiles, to the non Jews. And one of the 
amazing things that happens in the first couple generations of the Christian movement is that it becomes a movement predominantly composed of non-Jews. So Jesus is a Jew, all of his disciples are Jews, Paul is Jewish, but in the first couple generations, in the first century, um, more and more Gentiles begin to convert. This is why the Gospels and indeed the entire New Testament are written in Greek and not in Hebrew, is because the language that everybody spoke was Greek. That, that was the, the common tongue, right? And they wanted to spread the message as wisely as they could, as widely as they could. So when Paul wrote those letters to churches, he wrote them in Greek. Um, Paul plays... Paul is probably the most important missionary leader in the early Christian movement. And he, you know, he spends his life traveling throughout the Mediterranean. He'll go into a town, he'll start preaching the gospel, a few people become believers, and they start up a church. And he gets that church up and running, and then he moves on somewhere else. And so the letters we have from him are to church communities that he started. And I think that helps explain a little bit why his letters were immediately treated as valuable and authoritative um, because he was kind of the spiritual father, the one that had passed on the message about Jesus to a lot of these communities. And, um, you know, he wrote them a letter and they kept it and they read it from time to time. And there are places actually in Paul's letters where he encourages them or even commands them to read his letters when they gather together for worship on the Lord's Day. Not yet as holy scripture. He doesn't, he doesn't tell his church, hey, I wrote this letter and I'm pretty sure it's divinely inspired. I want you to read it every Sunday from now on. But he just says, hey, what I have to say is important. Share it with the community when you all get together. And he exerts this enormous influence. He has a very significant role in the early church. And yeah, his letters gradually become um, – respected authorities within the church within the first century or two. And so that's how his writings wind up in, in the Bible we have today. So generally we like Paul. Generally we're glad that Jesus met Paul on the road, knocked him down, brought him back up again, converted, you know, we're grateful for Ananias, for him coming and helping Paul come to understand the ways of Jesus. We're grateful that he truly almost single-handedly is, you know, responsible for living out uh, the Great Commission to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. He did a lot of good things. He wrote a lot of good letters. There's some things we don't love about Paul, or at least we're confused by. Um, you know, he wrote these letters that have beautiful statements that we hold on to. You know, we stitch yeah. them onto pillows and have mm -hmm. them in our homes. It, you know, there's nothing that can separate us from right. the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The greatest of these is love, yeah. Right. But then he also has like <laughs> wives submit to your husbands, which if right. you cross stitched that and put it in our house, we might have some conversations. I was going to give that to you for a Mother's Day present. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> you know, he has a passage that says like women should be silent in church. Mm -hmm. There are passages to that that we read in the New Testament that at first glance are confusing, yeah, are troubling. Um, seem downright uh, sexist, seem sometimes to promote the continuation of slavery, mm -hmm. passages that are read to the end that people use them, um, you know, in a homophobic way. Um, how do we read these passages of Paul that make us go, ooh, I'm not sure I like that. Maybe let's, there's a lot. So let's maybe stick around because I'm the one asking. Um, 
let's stick out, stick with the, the passages about women. Sure. Right? Like, yeah. is Paul, like, is Paul sexist? Does he not want women in leadership in the church? Um, or is there something else that's going on there? Yeah. So it, it helps to back up a little bit with that question. So the question is, is Paul sexist? The prior question is, what is Holy Scripture and how do we read it? One of the things we've talked about in my class a little bit is um, there are different sorts of passages in the Bible, and it's a mistake to think that with every passage in the Bible, our job as Christians is to read it and then do it without further ado. So... um, So like the psalm that says, you know, I'm so mad that, you know, let's dash babies' heads against a stone, right? That doesn't, that's not meant to be read, go smash baby heads. That's meant to be read as sometimes you feel so mad at somebody that you could have that level of animosity toward them. That's correct, right? So it's Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is a really good example. Um, Yeah, we're not supposed to take that psalm as our practice without further ado. We need to check its message, reinterpret its message in light of the ministry of Jesus. Right. So when we find those things in the Bible, in the in the epistles, right, in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Corinthians and in other parts of the Bible, um, it's not as though our job is immediately to say, right, the first thing we need to do is make all the women stop talking and submit to their husbands. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think what we find in the New Testament is, in fact, two different strands So we've talked before about the idea that the Bible is very diverse. There's a lot of different material in the Bible that's all woven together into one tapestry. So there's one strand of the Bible, especially the New Testament, that is very subordinationist toward women, right? That essentially says, you know, there's a hierarchy. Men are on top. Women are are on the bottom. Their job is to obey their husbands. Um, That's there, and I think we'd be... foolish to ignore it, although it often makes people uncomfortable. The second strand that we find is is one that's especially in the Gospels, um, but not only there, is one that empowers women and enlists them as leaders in the Christian movement to a remarkable extent. Right. So, um, you know, we often like to talk in the church about the fact that the Gospels all tell us that um, well, uh, the Gospels tell us that some of the first people to go to the tomb were women. Were women, right? The first evangelists who told the story that Jesus was risen were that, women. That's correct. And this is actually quite countercultural because in the ancient world, more sexist time, women were considered unreliable witnesses. Right. So, you know, if... if uh, um, if you had a trial or something like that, a woman was considered a very second-class, unreliable source. And so for the Christians to say, well, the first people that saw the risen Jesus were women, it's the sort of thing that no one would do in the ancient world unless it was, <laughs> unless it was really important. Unless, unless it, had, it was true. Correct. Unless it had really happened that way. So uh, the idea that the women become the first messengers of the resurrection is really significant. Um, And similarly, there are other parts of Paul's own writings that point towards an equal relationship between women and men. So, of course, there's Galatians 3.28, where Paul is talking about the reconciled Christian community and says that in Christ there isn't 
Jew or Greek anymore. There isn't slave or free anymore, and there isn't male or female. And those are three of the most salient social differences that existed in the ancient world. And the idea of them being sort of overcome or relativized in Jesus is incredibly significant. The last one you find is one of the easiest ones to overlook. Um, so we talked about how at the end of Romans, Paul names a bunch of people. He, he mentions a woman named Junia, J-U-N-I-A, and he lists her as among the apostles. Hmm. And Junia, for a long time, people thought this was a, a man's name, but it's not. It's actually a woman's name. And so there's this, to this day, uh, there's a healthy debate about the place of women in the body of Christ. Um, and often you hear people sort of thump the table and say, well, Jesus, all of Jesus' disciples were male. There were no female apostles. But Paul seems to suggest differently. Right. So he says, well, Junia, thank you for being a great apostle. I appreciate the work you did. So the first thing to understand when we read those passages, we have to see that the situation is very, is mixed. And it's a matter of figuring out um, what to do with those conflicting strands. And I think um, the advice I've tried to give throughout the semester is, um, you know, Scripture interprets Scripture. And we interpret Scripture in light of Jesus and in light of the totality of the biblical message about him. And so what we do in our Presbyterian church, what you and I do in our faith is interpret those problematic passages in light of the ones that stress the equality between men and women. Well, the thing I've learned as well is, and you, you've touched on this a little bit, that you need to particularly, so, you know, we, you, in the Old Testament, there's a certain level of, we don't know what was going on historically exactly at the time that those were being written. Mm -hmm. It's so long ago that we don't necessarily have the record. This we kind of do. We have some some other documents and historically verifiable um, evidences that tell us a little bit about the context into which Paul was writing, mm -hmm. um, that we can understand the issues at play in that church that he writes to. So, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is, you know, the passages that say, you know, women should be silent in church, or I don't permit a woman to teach a man or those kinds of things are written into a context in which the women at that point, because of their historical context, didn't have the level of religious education that the men did. Mm -hmm. They didn't have an understand right. level of understanding of training of how to lead a faith community that the men did. And so he said, hey, you who have less education, you who have less background, mm. you who have less knowledge, pipe down. Sure. And so we can take a principle there to say, let's not just give the microphone to anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, let's uh, let's not necessarily let the least prepared person lead. Mm -hmm. In that context, it was women. That that exact specific designation doesn't last anymore. You know, right. it, it's let's make sure that we train our leaders well. Let's make sure that the people who are leading our communities are theologically equipped yeah. to properly teach the gospel. Um, that is a principle that we absolutely want to carry forward. But it doesn't have to apply anymore solely to women. Would mm -hmm. that be accurate? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a helpful reminder as well, that there are, in fact, if you dig beneath the surface of some of those difficult passages in the New Testament, you often can find a principle that's worth retrieving, mm -hmm. even though the practice may be different that we advocate today. So in that, in that instance, right, you know, 
it may very well be that what Paul is talking about is, hey, let's not have chaos and disorder in our worship service. Right. You know, let's make sure the people that have wrestled the most with a particular passage of scripture have their chance to share their thoughts so that it's not chaos. Right. That, that's a great principle that can be applied today, whereas you know, the principle of only women have to shut up in church and the men can talk as much as they want, we wouldn't want to endorse that today. Right. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot there. Yeah. In the same way, you know, I'm just looking even now at Ephesians 5, and, you know, if we just read Ephesians 5.22, the, you know, your Mother's Day present, uh, <laughs> wives submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord, that feels... Um, it feels a lot of words that probably I don't want to say on this podcast. Uh, however, if you keep reading, it says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. And you think about, okay, well, what did Christ do for the church? Christ died Man. for the church. Christ gave his, in a painful way, subjected his body to suffering and death on the cross for the church. So it's not saying the guys are always in charge. It's saying, mm -hmm. if you're going to be married, be married to a man who's willing to give up his life for you. Yep. And, you know, then it goes on. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. And actually, lots and lots of more verses. So there's like two verses that say, wives, do this. But really what you're doing is trusting that your husband's ready to do anything for you, to serve you, to love you, to you know, suffer for you, to all of the things that Jesus did for the church. And then it's going on to say, husbands, do this, 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 this. Like, yeah. it's actually quite counter-cultural. Right. It wasn't, you know, the, the, the culture of the time was saying, women, you do all the things, men, just receive it. Right. And to us today, it sounds incredibly conservative, right. quote unquote, but to the people who heard it 2000 years ago, what they would have been struck by was the idea that husbands had an obligation to their wives to treat them with incredible kindness and care. That was really unusual back then because sadly the expectation was that your wife was just kind of your subordinate and you could do whatever you wanted. Right. And that's just so important for us to understand because we read this into our context right. and we think, oh, that's so sexist when really it was quite the opposite. Right. Um, but to understand that you need to understand the world that Paul was living in and the context that he was speaking to, which is why we need people like the Reverend Dr. David Bruner to help us understand. Well, and I think it's like, it's one of the reasons, you know, Presbyterians are a learning and studying tradition. And I think that's one of the things that you and I both appreciate about our about our tradition is we want to love God with our with our hearts, but we want to love God with our minds as well. And part of what we do is help people understand the context of the Bible. Yeah. And you know, there's that old saw that you'll sometimes hear in intro New Testament or intro old, where the professor will say, a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. Okay, please explain that. So a text of the Bible without any context. Without the background, understanding. Without, without the background is a pretext, right? So pretext is when you pretend to do something for some other reason. Okay. So a text without any background, without any context, is simply being used to proof text. So Which I, means get it to say what I want it to say. Right, or, or as a... Um, a conversation stopper. Hmm. And, um, you know, um, proof texting is a kind of debate that happens in the church where people um, quote scriptures at each other 
you know, they, they throw Bible bullets at each other, right? So um, can women be ordained? Well, you know, this says this, bang, there's my Bible bullet, you know, and oh, well, this passage says that, bam, there's my Bible bullet. And, it, and part of what context does when we study the Bible is it helps us dig deeper into not just the letter of scripture, but the spirit of scripture right. and, and what's really going on. And that's why it's so important to be a lifelong student of scripture. We're not necessarily ever going to master the Bible, but we will have our hearts and minds enlarged um, and, and deepened by learning more about the context of the Bible. And I think what I really appreciate about this, I think in our context, more than using scripture as a bullet, I think often in particularly in Presbyterian contexts and more and more in kind of post-Christian world, if there's passages that we read in the Bible that we don't like, we just throw them out. Yeah. We say, well, no, I don't like that. And absolutely, you know, yeah, I will agree at first reading. I don't necessarily love this past, you know, certain passages from Paul, but as I actually study them and get to know them in that context, I can appreciate them for what they are. And I don't have to read them in a way that makes me want to throw them out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's funny, either we throw them at each other or we just throw them out. We need to... <laughs> no throwing with regard to the Bible. Please don't throw Bible passages at someone else or out. It's a good life lesson for us all, isn't it? Yeah. Um, all right. So wrapping it up here, um, this week, uh, we are supposed to be, if we are keeping up with our long story short reading, we are supposed to be reading the book of revelation, which is as everyone knows, really easy, right. uh, easy Simplest to un- book of the Bible, easy to understand, uh, lots Totes. of words that make sense, no weird dragons or, uh, rainbows or anything like that. Um, <laughs> That makes me think of uh, another throwback to my generation, which is I think the entire Lisa Frank company that made all of the the binders and uh, school supplies that had rainbows and unicorns on them. Maybe they were just reading uh, Revelation. Uh, Candace is going to get that one. So okay. that's for the I, ladies out yeah, there. Yeah, I think Matt Matt and I are looking at each other, and we have no, we don't know what you're talking about. That's so. Fine. So. Uh, Revelation, as you're going to talk about it next week in the final long story short class, so we won't steal your proverbial... um, Don't steal my Revelation Thunder. Revelation Thunder, which is also itself a Revelation pun. But um, (laughs) this is just going off the rails. (laughs) Give us a little bit of like, okay, we're reading Revelation. How do we read this? Like, give us a little bit of a Revelation monocle that we can read it through to understand it a little bit before we you unlock it all in your teaching next week. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm not sure how much I'll unlock. I'll do my darndest. I mean, it is a very challenging book. And one one thing one thing that reading the Bible teaches you, it's okay to be challenged by books of scripture. And people always want to get a lot out of Revelation because it's the last book in the Bible and they feel like it, they should have this Right, it's like the last 10 minutes of a movie. You want it to be amazing. Well, sometimes the movie ends with a really weird like have you ever seen 2001, Becca? No. Matt, have you seen 2001? Matt is nodding. Okay. So um, the 2001 A Space Odyssey ends with this completely crazy, trippy, like kind of dream sequency thing. And it's a real humdinger moment. So the, the first, you know, hour of the movie is this awesome sci-fi adventure. And you're like, yes, I get this. And the last five, 10 minutes, you're like, what the heck? 
just happened. And how you feel about that movie depends a lot about how you feel about the ending, right? And how the ending is very polarized. So in some ways, the Bible is the same way, right? The last book is challenging. That's okay. Like, if you're like, I love this book, I'm not sure about the ending, but I'm going to read it again, that's perfectly fine. That's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is, um, you know, it's this book is written to churches that are being, that are struggling and being oppressed. So it's written to, to a Christian church that is um, actively undergoing persecution and trouble. And so we need to read it in that light. It's written as a word encouraging Christians to endure and to stick with Jesus, even when things are really hard. This is a... That's something I think that's hard for us to imagine because we're so fortunate to live in the milieu that we live in. And some of it has that language in it. Like there's, again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but some of it does have some imagery and purposefully veiled language that that particular community would have understood, but we don't now. You know, things referencing Nero and and those who were doing the oppressing work, they're referencing that, but in kind of some veiled symbolic ways, right? It's possible, yeah. I mean, so like you hear, you know, the famous number 666, the mark of the beast, like that that may in some ways be a veiled reference to particular Roman emperors. I, I, um, one piece of advice I often give to people is, you know, learn as much as you can about the Bible and about Revelation in particular. I think people sometimes go awry when they try to read Revelation as a code to be cracked hmm. rather than a poem to be stirred by. Hmm. So, um, you know, people, so the Christian history of the Christian church is filled with people who scrutinize revelation and think they've come up with the precise date of Christ's return. Right. I mean, right? I read three quarters of the left behind series and you know, that that's what they're all okay. trying to do is say, okay, the revelation tells us that this is how it's going to go down. And, you know, frankly, they got too long and convoluted and I sure. gave up, but that sure. was the point at the beginning. Right. I, I come, have come to learn and understand, you know, revelation's not trying to tell us here's how it's all going to go down, but that there is some level of, here's, we understand what's going on, and here's how Jesus is Lord, even in the midst of a really crazy, not easy to live in world. That's exactly right. And I think the images that are being presented are, you know, so the the scrolls, what do the seven scrolls mean? And, um, uh, well, there, it's, we can talk about what their meaning is, but it is a poetic, symbolic sort of meaning. Um, and there's not some, you know, like a good poem, there's meaning there, but it's not meant to be unlocked once and for all the way you um, solve a math problem. Um, it's meant to be returned to again and again to say, what does God say to communities that are in trouble? What does God say to communities that are hurting about mm. God's final victory over sin, death, and the devil? The only thing I remember from, I think it was probably our intro to New Testament class in seminary is Dr. Blunt talking about, you know, people get really scared in some of the imagery in yeah. in Revelation. It sounds scary. It sounds like there's all this evil around trying to hurt us and and, and whatever. And he referenced specifically the, the, you know, mark of the beast, the 666. And who, you know, who is that representing and what bad are they liable right. to do? And he, his take on that was um, understanding that within the Bible, uh, numbers can play a, a significant 
symbolic right. role right. that seven within the context of the Bible is a number that represents perfection. Yes. And so it was kind of like these, these powers that uh, mean to harm you, whether it's a political power, a spiritual power, whatever, that, that, that which opposes God and God's goodness in the world they keep trying to be as strong as God. Right. So they had, had, they have a six and then another six and another six. Right. And it's not meant to actually stop at three. It could have six infinitum. They're never going to be as powerful as right. Jesus, who is the perfection in seven. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of, I just, that's the one thing that stuck with me was, yeah. uh, that's what that's meant to communicate to us is no matter how many sixes you put in a row, that you're never going to be a seven. The powers for evil are never going to be as strong as the power of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, so whatever symbolic, scary things happen to be in revelation, the final word is a word of life and a word of hope and a word of triumph over sin and death and evil in the world. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) I, I don't feel the need to add anything to that. Well, that's it. Thank you, friends, for submitting your questions for our second Ask Me Anything podcast. If this has cropped up any more questions for you, you know where to send them, dbruner at knoxpress.org. Or just come talk to us and we'll take you out for a cup of coffee. We'd love nothing more. Thank you, everybody. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks to our technical assistant, Matthew Sunblade. To find out more about our mission and ministry, visit our website, knoxprez.org. You can join us for Sunday worship in person or online as well. Thanks, and see you next week.